Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indy. What's up, everybody? My name's Indy, and the gentleman next to me over there is Mr. Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting, and welcome to Indie Game Business. Let's talk about tax write-offs. Buy <laughs> some stuff. <laughs> Buy some stuff. Write it off. Indy's the one. Indy's learning about the joys of being a, a company owner now. Well, so, I mean, even doing it as a sole proprietorship, it's it's all the same thing. Well, yeah, same thing. And I mean, well, we've my, had our LLC for several years, so. I'm still trying to figure out where I am supposed to be logged in. So, a uh, lot going on, and so we're going to take the day to basically talk about some stuff that's come out in the news and answer any and all questions that you all have about the business of games. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna post on. I'm gonna start sharing on Facebook while you're talking. Okay, excellent. So obviously, and we've talked about it with the last couple of shows. It's still a big deal. Everybody's quarantined and, and hopefully social distancing. And what does this mean for uh, businesses? And what does it mean for your kids' schooling? And just two things. And, I, and I'll look to see if I can find these links in the meantime. But there were two really good links that I saw, articles I saw on Medium recently. One was basically how Generation X, which is my generation, Indy's generation, a lot of us that have been around for a while, um, was built for this shit because we're used to being ignored and we're used to hanging out by ourselves because we were all latchkey kids when we were you know, growing up. And if you aren't familiar with the term, it basically uh -uh. means we came home from school and babysat ourselves, you know? So yeah. It's, it's that, that was one of them. But then the other one was, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure on everybody right now. You know, am I doing enough for my business? Am I doing enough for, you know, my family? And you just compound it with all the stress that's going on anyway, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And there was a great article that, that basically said, look, we're not okay. We, we, we can't turn around and pretend that everything is smiling and happy right now because this this is tough and it is and, and so i found it right here so the parents are not all right um it, it, it's a good read because it's if nothing else it reminds you that you know none of this stuff is normal for us and it's not going to be normal for a while and it's okay to not be doing it Perfectly, you know, I felt bad last night. I didn't really get a chance to go upstairs and hang out with my wife and son because I was working till like 11 o'clock last night. And you know, it's just the reality. That's bad. The, well, I, it is, but at the same time, we're in an industry right now where things are exploding. 
things are growing fast and you have to be on top of it. And it's not like I'm doing that every night, but yesterday was just one of those days that, you know, we had a whole lot of stuff going on. I had proposals to get out to clients. I've got a uh, very special project that I'm working on with two other very notable, well-known people that we're going to be launching in the next couple of weeks. And that requires work. And all of that is outside of normal work. And, right. you know, it's, it's just, it's okay to just absolutely not be perfect. I had a day like that last week. It's just like, I, I could not focus. And so I finally just stepped up and, and walked away and said, I'll do this later. Well, that, that's the good thing about working from home. I mean, I, I personally try and stick to my hours, you know. Um, sometimes I'll get up earlier because I, I want to be done. Or I, I try and work like eight hours. And mm -hmm. I want to be done early enough in the day so that I can do other stuff. But, yeah, sometimes you got to work, you know. Or sometimes you got a client that's in China. And they're like, what, 12, 13, 14. They're 15 hours ahead of me. So, um, you know, sometimes you got to do that kind of stuff. And also you're talking about the industry booming. Uh, one of the things that I do is I talk with a lot of large agencies every day. And so many of them are saying, you know what? 2021 is going to be the year of the influencer, the year that, and I'm like, you know, I'm pretty sure right now, right now is it right. And so, but I mean, now, as far as like large agencies that work with large brands I, in the next year or so, they're really going to be focusing hardcore on influencers. And it's a perfect time because, you know, people right now, it's a perfect time because, you know, people are at home. The content mm -hmm. that is being created is like 20% more than average. I was reading that like 20% more on Twitch, 20% more. You know, and there's a massive amount more people watching. And so, you know, it's, it's for the things that you can do from home. It's it's time. And you know what? I was riding my bike the other day and I totally I'm like, it's an Instagram girl. She was like wearing. I don't know. And she had like the piggy tails, the, the Harley Quinn piggy tails. And she had like striped clothes and she was like standing in front of the in front of a stop sign at the uh, at the. Uh, at the crossroad in front of the train tracks and she's like leaning back taking her a selfie and i'm like instagram girl as i was streaming <laughs> twitch on my bike riding by right so all right dark sage let's hear that interesting question i like interesting questions i like dull questions too but dull yeah, questions I'm what's up sean peoples john peoples morning and it's interesting how all of a sudden the rest of the world we're talking about digital events and how you know everybody's like oh my god we should do a digital conference now and you know we're standing back here going yeah we've been doing this for a year now but okay now that everybody's paying attention you know we'll we'll, we'll play along and i think it's going to be the same way with influencers you know for all of the people that have been talking about influencers being important in last year and this year. Well, now all of a sudden it's, it's hit them, you know, reality. People are watching more Twitch, more Mixer, more YouTube. TikTok. And, <laughs> yeah, TikTok. And, and it's one of those that they have to pay attention to it now. My question is, and I know the way a lot of these older, more established ad agencies work and they're very focused and they, you know, they're, 
It's like they know how what their return is on a television commercial or you know whatever, and they're very hesitant to do stuff on influencers because they're like, I don't know what my real return is going to be. They've just their frame of mind changes so slowly that. I'm wondering if it's actually this is going to be the tipping point for the influencer world, or if when all of this is over, they just go back to what they've been doing. Well, I feel like that, that's why they're saying 2021 is going to be the year of the influencer, because you know those large agencies that you know spend hundreds of millions of dollars, they have to go through the whole chain of the you know of all the people and all the and so it's going to take them that long to uh, <laughs> to really like activate influencers it's time for it's time for some uh, hand sanitizer <laughs> well i want to hear this question oh here we go here's dark sage's question i saw a few days ago that halo infinite is coming out soon along with games like metroid prime 4 and my question is with games like halo and metroid spanning many games and stories what is the plan for the future what i mean is is this the last halo game with master chief we will get <laughs> will halo go off and do a new story and in the case of metro metroid why revisit the prime series what story is there left to tell um well what i would say is that um master chief is going to be in half-life 3 right what? when you say jay <laughs> <laughs> When, when we look at games and game franchises, it's not like novels or movies or basically any other kind of medium. Take Zelda, for example. You can't really put all the Zelda games together as a linear story. It just doesn't fit. It, it's like, okay, he wakes up one time to fight Ganon and then he wakes up another time, but none of the, the princess is always there. It's only this games that have actually planned story arcs out are going to work that way. You know, I love the, um, the sniper series from rebellion, but you know, the same guy has now been fighting in three or four different theaters of the war all pretty much at the same time and you just kind of have to like disconnect from it you know there's always more stories to tell you know maybe you know master chief is, is younger the next time or you know and there's so I, many I, characters I just, like we can have a billion more star wars movies that all take place in the same time right yeah. If you've ever I mean, watched like the, the Star Wars um, shorts, you know, um, Final Fantasy is another one. Yeah, but if you ever I mean, watch the Star Wars shorts, they they like go off on side characters or androids or whatever, you know. Would uh, Red Dead Redemption <laughs> or GTA count as an overarching story? No, I don't think so. Because you don't have the same characters. Well, you don't have all the same characters. There are characters that show up. Red Dead, maybe. I haven't played the new one, to be honest, but it's a prequel, actually, to the first one, isn't it? I don't know. I haven't played it either. With GTA, you've only got, like, it's rare that a, a character crosses over. You know? I, yeah, I think each GTA is different, right? Yeah. Uh, as different one, characters 
I think there's one character from four that shows up in five. But it's you, you just you can't you have to kind of like disconnect your traditional linear story storytelling from games a lot of times because they just don't follow a congruent path. You know, even role playing games like right. you know the Pillars of Eternity. You got Pillars of Eternity too, but the only real carryover between the two is the setting. You you can't have the same you know player characters and, and that's what frustrates me to an extent because it's like if i spend 60 hours in this character <laughs> in you know a, a, an rpg you wanted to level up to the next, next one, one and i'm like well i got it but he was awesome and i want to do and, <sighs> and i get it it's like even with traditional D&D, once your characters get up into like the teens of levels, it's like, okay, what are we going to have them fight? Like demigods and things at this point? Well, it's but, like World of Warcraft, the way World of Warcraft, you know, your character carries over with each update. Yeah, it, it'd be it nice. Does. But at the same time, you know, they've gotten, that's, that's an extreme example too, because I think it's been going on for like 15 years. But you get to the point where your character could, pretty much fundamentally stomp anybody into the dirt that they wanted to. It's, it's just, it's really hard. And that's why, you know, our industry is referred to as nonlinear storytelling and things like television shows and books and movies are linear storytelling. You can't, it, it doesn't always fit in there neatly. And, you know, you just kind of have to enjoy the world as a whole versus getting too super attached to one character. Because just enjoy the experience, man. <laughs> I mean, it's like you said, Metroid. Yeah, maybe there's not a story to tell anymore about Samus, but you know what? People are still buying it. And if people are still buying it, there's going to be another one. You know, they'll go back and, and change something or... Well, look at Mario. I mean, you know, story, 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 story. All right, so we got another question. From L. Brown the Destroyer, or is that I. Brown? I'm not sure. Um, how difficult is it to self-publish as a first-time dev? Extremely. I mean, really, really. I mean, it, it's one of those that if you've never had a game published, if this is your first game altogether, I don't, I don't recommend self-publishing at all. Um, if you are starting a new developer, but you've been in the industry for three, four, five years, and you've had a game published and you understand all the stuff that goes into it, then you have a, a you know, a, a good opportunity to do it. There's two levels of that question though. How difficult is it to self-publish as a first time dev? It's not very difficult at all. You, you have a Steam account or you, you iTunes or whatever, you upload the game, you're done. Pretty much make your game your game page and that's it. You have effectively self-published. How difficult is it to successfully self-publish as a first-time dev? That's where it's very, very difficult. Yes, all the tools are there that will allow you to do all of the technical things that you need to do to publish your game. But in order to make it successful and build that community and market it well and get people to notice the game and play the game and then talk about the game that is extremely hard and that's one of the things that we actually had uh queued up to talk about today is steamworks just released this big deep dive on data and i was you know laughing and, and chuckling with indy before we went live and just looking at the headlines between the different you know signs and, and steam's like what was it hundred thousand ten thousand however many games 
were successful or, or made at least $10,000. And then you go to, you know, Ars Technica and it's, their headline is 80% of Steam games earn under 5K in the first two weeks. So it, you know, it depends on how that, how you get it out there and, and what you're doing. So, so you're, you're asking how difficult is the marketing PR, early access and community building. The early access has been, in my opinion, a really good thing for developers because it basically gives you an opportunity to market your game and help with that community building. And also basically people pay you to beta test, which is never a bad thing. Um, but it's something that I hesitate to say it's not hard because I've been doing this for 20 years and we've had folks on the show that have been doing it that long as well. But if you're new to the industry and you don't understand the basics and you've never done it before, it's, it is very time consuming. It is very, you know, it's very difficult. So um, if you go back and listen you know, to some of the episodes that we've done in the past, the one with Justin French, and he has a wonderful set of Gama Sutra blogs. If you just Google Justin French Gama Sutra, which is what I end up doing every time somebody asks, because I'm like, it's Justin's blogs. That's great. He outlines why you should use a Discord community as your main hub for community building. Uh, then on the marketing and the PR side, you know, we've had a lot of folks on here to talk about it, you know, how they approach it. We had, you know, Yulia from, from Tiny Build. We've had, you know, Michael Brown, who runs Vicious PR down in, in Georgia. There's a lot of stuff that is new, that is difficult, that isn't difficult to those of us who have done it for a long time, but, you know, doing it for the first time is tough. Um, so he says, I am transitioning from business software, so I need to reframe my customer persona and targeting my audience. Okay, yes, yeah, sorry, now it makes, now I got a better idea here. Uh, basically throw out everything that you knew and, <laughs> and go from there. It's, it's, you've got a huge step up in the fact that you already know what a customer persona is. I mean, to be blunt, that's, that's a big thing that a lot of teams don't really grasp. So if you're, familiar with how to to build those personas based around the game that you're building then it's going to be a lot easier for you uh you need to once you've got that persona understand where they look for news and you know are they watching streamers if they are which ones are they watching where are they watching it and that's going to help you you know center your, your your marketing but it's something that you know every guest that has been on here you know, we've talked about and we, we constantly reinforce, you need to be building that community from the minute you have the first screenshot. You know, Instagram is good for developers. Twitter, you know, Twitter's good, but I mean, to me, Twitter is so noise, full of noise that it's tough. tough. Um, and then Discord, you know, pointing everybody to a Discord server. Um, but, you know, understand why your game is unique you know, there's a lot of twin stick pixel games out there. Uh, understand what makes yours unique. Talk about that. Push on it. You know, hit those marketing personas. As you get the game further along, I would still recommend bringing in a marketing team to help you with it or a publisher in the first place because it's easier. With the publisher, you're going to be able to learn while they're doing it. 
and so you know in a sense you're and learning the, off their dom yeah and they uh have done it a thousand times you know so mm. they already have a a process and connections and everything yeah i mean it's not something i would recommend if you haven't launched a game before because you'll end up spending 75 percent of your time on marketing and yeah. social media and then just a little teeny bit of time for uh making the game exactly exactly so yeah and localization is a completely different ballgame because i don't want to do localization myself yeah i mean there are no matter what aspect of publishing you need to focus on there are specialty firms out there but it's going to require you to have the capital to pay those firms to go out and, and pay for localization of the game pay for marketing and pr you know pay for you know, all the other stuff that goes along with this and so if you don't have that then you need to go and get a publisher because they do have that and don't get roped into the whole this company is going to do marketing and PR for us for a revenue share because that's that's not going to end well. You know, it, it's when when everybody has a finite amount of time, and when you know that firm's time is being taken up by clients who are paying them every month, that's who's going to get their attention, not the you know company that they may get money from if it succeeds they're going to focus on the people that are paying them right paying and them then it, it is harder to do that because co honestly companies only want to invest their time into something that they think is going to be a massive success mm -hmm. so yeah the uh rev share is 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 rough Rip shit, yeah, rip it's, I mean, it's every dev's dream, but you know, you have to have a freaking amazing game. And if it's so amazing that an awesome company wants to do rev share, you might as well pay for a publisher, right? <laughs> because uh, uh, it'll cost less. Sorry. The Damn minute, you! The minute we go live, I, I get like five or six messages related to everything. Work. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so obviously, yeah, if you're, if you're out there, no matter where you are, you got a question, pop it up in chat. We'll see it. Uh, it looks like we are not live on LinkedIn, which, you know, is it really unusual? And, and I have it set up the show. way he recommended. It's, yeah, it's set up. Um, so, yeah, let's look at some of the stuff that we were talking about anyway. So E3 announced this morning that they're not doing anything. And it, it's... It's frustrating to me, and, and I know I've, I am. I have been highly critical about E3 because it doesn't seem to know where it belongs in the industry anymore. But of all times, this is the time that would let them reinvent what they're doing. Yeah, and you know, this is really an opportunity for them to step up and say. You know, this we, we understand this is the new way of doing events, and this is how we're going to do it better because we're E3. And, you know, to see that, you know, that they just turned around this morning and said, you know, we're, we're just not going to do it. And, and so, yeah, it, it is. And, and Sean says now that various big names do their own direct presentations. 
Yes. But there's a lot of, you know, good stuff to show. There's a lot of potential outside of the big companies. Now, if you aren't familiar, E3 is run by the ESA, which is the Electronic Software Association, which is basically a gigantic lobbying group up in Washington whose members include all the big publishers. Not very many small publishers, not very many indies. And so basically it, it looks like what they're, they look around and all of their own group says, we're just gonna do our own stuff and, and that's it. And, and so it's one of those things that, you know, yeah, and Sean says E3 needs a new format. It does need a new format. And this is the chance for them to do a new format but instead, they're just like, no, we're not going to do anything. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So what would make you get interested in E3 again, Andy? <laughs> um, right now? I mean... I, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of, like, online conferences and stuff like that. But it's like, how... How the whole point of E3 is you go up, you demo stuff, you get to talk to people, right? So how would they like replicate that online? They have like a virtual booth that you walk up to and maybe there's like using Google Stadia or something, you're able to play the game and then talk to somebody live and you stand in line, you know? I mean, how... Well, see, I don't know that that's it either. To me, you know, E3 has always been a marketing event. That's, and that's basically what it is. You know, it, it, it was back in the day, it was where you had to show all of your stuff to the magazines and the websites and the buyers from Walmart and, and GameStop and everything. Um, now that with it, you know, since digital distribution came on, that's not the same anymore. But I think there is a there's a big need and a big opportunity to showcase all the games, the good games. You have to curate these things that aren't being shown by Sony and Nintendo and Microsoft and Bethesda and EA, which is basically what they've surrendered to. You know, is is all of our members are going to do their own thing, and it it's it could very well be simply a symptom of the fact that they're run by a lobbying organization that is, you know, all the members of these big companies. Um, I, I would love to see E3 can do something like Jeff Keeley, Neely, Keeley, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Knightley, uh, is, is doing. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that he split from E3 this year is because, you know, he's got the Game Awards which in the last couple of events have shown more and more indie titles. And have you ever been to he, one of those? No. God, I, all, here's, my pro, here's my problem with it. They last too damn long. It's like the last one was like four or five hours long, it seems like. I, I, I don't it's pretty know. neat. I went to one, and there's like, there's like red carpet, and then you, people get their pictures taken. There's a lot of famous people that go through, like uh, Hollywood premiere, and then it's like in a massive theater, and you just sit there and hang out and drink <laughs> and watch it. And I think you know it's the closest our industry has to 
you know, a real Academy Awards type right. thing. Uh, I think it's too long <laughs> for one, but you look what he did last time and while they were running it, they had a big sale and a big promo going on with Steam. So you could download some of these games that you weren't going to have the chance to play for a while. And that's the type of event. That event is going in the right direction. You know, you, you can't have everybody there, but you can celebrate and announce a lot of really cool things mm-hmm. and give players around the world a chance to play them you know, while this is going on or for the next few days after it and, and that sort of stuff. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just part of me is is like, well, you know, we've watched E3 stumble for years and try to figure out where it fits in the equation now. And it's not unexpected, but at the same time, it sucks because, you know, it's E3 and... That's that's what everybody knows. That's what that's the show everybody's looking forward to for you know twenty five years. But I mean, there's the the reality side of it. Even when the last three E threes I've gone to, I barely went on the floor at all because I was there to do business, and all the business happens in the Marriott lobby or the JW lobby or whatever hotel is right there beside it. So yeah, they're apparently. Tossing in the towel, maybe they'll be back next year, but I don't know. It, it, who knows? Do you think that with all of with this happening, that it's going to permanently change the way? You think it's like a door opener to more online conferences, even like even though there's going to be packs and all of those kind of things? You think it's a a big door opener? Well, I'll answer that with a example. I just posted the list that we compiled of mm-hmm. upcoming uh, digital conferences, and there are twenty-two. That's a client that I know of summary that deck. are happening between now and the end of August. That's a client summary deck. Uh, wrong deck. So yeah, in case you want to look at our clients, there they are. Um, that's what I was working on before the show. <laughs> so, hold on. That one. There we go. That link. Bit.ly slash online game conferences. And for some reason, you have to capitalize online game and conferences like we do, or it won't work. And I don't understand that, but okay. Um there's 22 of them coming up in the next like four months. So it's going to be uh, a lot of what we see like in, in regular conferences. The ones that aren't done well are going to die quickly. Uh, I think a lot of these companies are going to realize how much work it is to do because I know they look at it and they go, oh, okay, well, we just need to stream something and you know, then we'll have some places for people to meet. And that, is all we need to do. And, you know, it's not. We had one of these groups reach out to us yesterday. And a lot of the, you know, traditional events in the industry are partner events for our indie game business shows. And so I know a lot of the folks that are running the traditional events. And one of them reached out to me and said, can you help us get more publishers to come to our event? And I said, frankly no not for free i said you don't 
people that have never done these events don't realize that it's still something new that people aren't 100% sure of. I don't even know the hours that I personally spend before one of our events on the phone, on direct emails, on you know Discord, talking to publishers and saying, look, this is something you need to be in. You know, talking to marketing teams. I mean, I can sit there and show show the stats. I showed a marketing team the the thing the the actual screenshot of our meeting request system for the March show, where it said there were you know one of the things you can tick is I am looking for a marketing and PR team, and I showed that and sent him the screenshot of 142 developers that were looking for marketing and PR. He still, didn't get a ticket. He, he still didn't buy a ticket. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to show. I don't, you know, if you can't look where it says a hundred, over a hundred people want are looking for someone to hire that does what you do. And it's going to cost you as little as 50 bucks to get access to it. I, I can't help you. Either you, you just, you must absolutely not need business. That's the only thing I can think of because it's absolutely crazy, you know, and, and to be honest, it's going to, all of these events, it's going to be like everything else. You know, there's going to be some, that, some that work and some that don't work and some are going to die off and some don't. But even on, you know, our power group travel budget, you know, we can attend a whole lot more conferences now. And it's not like I'm sitting back and going, well, we run our own conference. I'm not going to the rest of these damn conferences. No, I still run a company at the end of the day. I'm going to go to all of them that it makes sense for me to go to. So it's, it's, it's good. And yes, there is a lot of awareness now that I don't, I'm not going to say people have seen the light, but it's like people don't have another option. That's, you know, more along the lines of. Yeah, it's forced into doing something. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people are scared of it or because they don't realize exactly what it is, you know. And trust me, if I had a better way to explain it after running four of these events, I would absolutely do it. But I mean, you spend thousands of dollars to go to physical conferences and you look at the directory and some of them have good ways of making, finding meetings and some of them have shitty ways of doing it. GDCs is one of the worst, but that's why you've seen meet to match and game connection and these other, you know, companies pop up and doing events alongside GDC because everybody knows GDC system is the worst, but the, the reality is you all you have to do is find that person and then click a link and, and you're getting an introduction. You're networking right there. Mm-hmm. And the argument I always hear is, well, it doesn't replace the random meetings. Well, no, it doesn't. You know, it, it, it's not going to replace the, well, I accidentally bumped into the, you know, head green light decision maker at Devolver while I was at 
a random party. But again, those are random occurrences. You know, <laughs> there's no assurance that that's going to happen. And even more so, if it's at a party or something like that, there's no assurance that person's going to remember you in the next morning either. You know, so it's it, it's frustrating to me of how well we can do these things and you know the people that attend ours like them you know and, and, and we get great feedback but it's just one of those things that people just aren't they aren't interested in, in understanding sometimes well I mean with the way that it is now I mean who knows how long we'll be uh, holed up in our in our homes <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The, um, I talked to a guy in, in Bangkok yesterday, and, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, we, we I live in a fairly rural part of the country up in the mountains, and so we've only had seven cases here in the county, and the majority of those are from an organization that goes overseas a lot. And so everybody knows that they're going to come back with something and they're all pretty much self-quarantining. But, you know, even the surrounding counties have got like one or two cases of it. And so, you know, while we're doing our social distancing here, at least we are in this house, we've got neighbors that are still going out and doing, I mean, we're just like sitting here shaking our heads. But anyway, yeah. um, they, you know, this guy's like, he and his family have been, quarantined into a apartment on the eighth floor of a sky rise in Bangkok for a couple of weeks. And he said, if I'm looking at our timeline here and putting it on your timeline in the U S things might be getting to get back to normal around June. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. That's crazy. All right. Um, so we have a, uh, Comment question from on YouTube, Hitoshi Kano. Online matchmaking is way more accessible to a lot of indie devs around the world. The thing I wonder is how this pandemic affects business opportunities in our industry. The industry's booming. Hey, Hitoshi. <laughs> Everyone's Hitoshi. at home playing games. <laughs> Hitoshi's dad in Peru. I met him and had sushi with him. Um, Peruvian sushi? Yeah, it was good. It was good. It wasn't uh. as good as the ceviche. But I mean, I mean, Hitoshi, I need to come back next year because I just I can't find that level of cerveche here in the you know where, where I am. But so yeah, that the whole reason we started doing our event last year was because of studios like yours, frankly. That you know we wanted to make all of this stuff more accessible to more teams globally. It is it's gonna be a double-sided, what are we going to say? Coin, coin, sword, whatever. Anyway, there's good and bad. (laughs) So the good is that you can get your game out in front of more publishers, in front of more marketing teams, in front of more potential consumers. The... uh... (laughs) Ceviche. I know, but see, they all these other, you know, Latin countries claim it is too, and it's and it's not. It's not nearly as good as yours, I assure you. Because um, I've been trying to find it ever since I got back from Peru. You have got to check out our Discord at discord.gg/indiegamebusiness. It's an amazing community of over thirty five hundred other industry experts 
We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck, finding a publisher, and more. Remember, it's discord.gg slash indie game business. Yay! But the the other side of that coin is it's easier for everybody to find publishers, find consumers, find marketing teams to help them. So while you're going to have more people to pitch to, more opportunities to get your game in front of decision makers, you're going to have to try that much harder to make your stand out because there's more coming in from everywhere now. And, and so that's the, that's the downside, you know, upside, you've got opportunities coming out the wazoo right now, downside, so does everybody else. And so you've got to, you got to plan for that. You got to make sure your stuff stays, steps out that much better than everywhere else. It's worse than when steam opened up the floodgates. Um, because now when steam opened up the floodgates, you were only dealing with PC games. Now, you know, you're, you're dealing with every kind of game and, and publishers that are, that deal in multiple platforms are seeing this. There's more, there's more money in the industry right now. I can tell you that much. So, you know, if you're looking to port your game or, you know, add on content sales are going sales are skyrocketing you know going into publishers going into developers um like like we said last time somebody asked is this a good time to release a game two weeks ago i didn't know now i would say yes as long as you are doing the things that you need to do to properly market and build awareness for the game yeah it's a good time to release and if you've got a game already on the market it's a hell of a good time to drop it in price by a little bit and, and send everybody on steam all your wish list followers a little note that says my game just went on sale i mean i know yeah. i bought 30 games in the last two weeks that i probably wouldn't have bought otherwise that have been on my what games did you uh, buy i got tabletop simulator which i've been wanting to get for a very very long time but just never did they dropped that 50 percent down to 10 bucks i bought it um i bought planet zoo which I've wanted again for a very, very long time. And they didn't, I mean, the sale price on that wasn't that much, but it was like, okay, yeah, now I have an excuse to buy it. Um, I got Half-Life Alex, which, you know, for the four people out there that actually follow my Twitter, you will know that I am done playing that game. <laughs> oh, because the face crab jumped on your face? <laughs> oh my God, dude. It scared the shit out of me. But it didn't, that didn't scare me nearly as much as when you're going through the sewers and, and forgive me, it has been a long time since I played a Half-Life game. And so I'm not familiar with the, I don't even remember the actual story at the end of Half-Life 2. Um, 
but that alien, that lanky looking alien, Dvorkian or whatever they're called, like opens up the peephole in the door and sticks his face through to see who you are. I that was I literally jumped and cursed when that happened. But yeah, then the uh, <laughs> were you stand? Do you stand up and play it, or do you do it yes. sitting down? No, I'm standing up, standing up, walking around in in my office and. Holy shit. Yeah, that, that scared me. But when the head crab jumped on my face and I wasn't sure how to get it off and I was just like flailing, I'm sure anyone who had been in my office would have been dying Were laughing. you like shaking your head and stuff or? Yes. Trying to I'll hit yourself in the face? Swatting it. Yeah, I mean, all, and then I emptied like an entire clip of pistol rounds into the thing when it finally fell off. But yeah, I was just like. Yeah, That's awesome. awesome. I, I'm done playing. <laughs> Is that for sale in the Oculus store? Like, if I'm going to shoot guns into my face. Maybe it is. I don't know. I think it's, I would assume it's Steam exclusive being as it's Valve's game. Right. But to be honest, I don't know. But it is a really good game. I mean, it, it, it truly is. And it's like I tried to play No Man's Sky, which I've put a bunch of hours into lately. Tried to do that in VR, but... I couldn't, I just got motion sick on that one. But in Half-Life Alex, you can do the whole teleporting thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's much better. That's a big saver. That's what? A big uh, lifesaver, the teleporting. Yeah, I like it a lot. I Did like you ever play the Rick and Morty game? I started it one time, but I mean, I'll confess i haven't really watched that much rick and morty i need to i realize and the episodes that i have watched i really enjoyed but i've probably seen like three episodes of the show you know in total um that's good div says if you put a fan in front of you while playing it reduces motion sickness that's interesting i'll try that yeah Wonder if that works. I wonder why. Maybe because it gives your your brains just thinking that you're moving. And I don't know. I I used to work on a fishing boat, and even if it was windy, I would get sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, you were in the Bering Sea. You mean? No, you were... I was on the coast of Oregon. I wasn't in the Bering Sea. Oh, I thought you were doing like the straight up like no deadliest catch shit. No. Um, it was the deadliest fishing boat. Like, is what if it was. You get motion sickness. Why were you working on a fishing boat? Because it paid really good money. <laughs> the first like two weeks of crab season, I made like seven grand. It was awesome. Oh God! I was throw- so- throwing up and working at the same time. It's not fun though. But well, no, no, I I agree. That's that. That was why I was asking. But I mean, yeah. Once again, if the money outweighs the pain, then run with it. The um. Where but, uh, am I from? I'm from Oregon. What's up, Crytex? I'm from Oregon, Southern Oregon. Um, I was in on the coast in Brookings, where I was fishing out of. Oregon. Oregon. Um, yeah, I lost where we were. But yeah, anyway, I'm sure at some point I will go back and and play more of Half-Life Alex, but uh, yeah, I had to take a break. But I'll tell you what sucks though, is those gloves that that you use to catch things, because I mean, this is where Valve really did well. It's like, you don't have to like shuffle over to every little thing. If you want to pick up a magazine 
of ammo or whatever you don't have to like walk over there and pick it up you get these gloves that let you target something and then you flick your wrist and it flies at you and you just catch it and you put it in your backpack and so it's really easy to use and so they've really done a good job of implementing you know quality of life changes into the game design um but yeah when you take off that headset you get back to the real world and you like look and you need to pick something up and you can't like target it flip it to your hand that sucks that's (laughs) (laughs) that's the technology that we need is those little gravity gloves you know that they're that they're using so um yeah in in general hitoshi it, it, it is a good opportunity you've got a a wonderful deep level of access now to the companies that you need access to but you just have to remember so does everybody else and so you gotta work on your pitch you gotta make sure everything is top of the game and you can really explain it very very quickly because you can't you can't write them a page and a half long email and and want them to get involved in it because they're gonna be like oh, not too much to read so um what what else so do we want to look at those um articles andy god it's already 12 45 we just completely yeah run through this stuff um i'll post the links to them in chat because it is a good you know it is a good data source for looking at you know how games are doing and, and understanding it but what you're going to quickly realize is it's not exactly all good news. Mm-hmm. I mean, 80% of Steam games earn under 5K in the first two weeks. And yep. then it's just downhill from there. Yep. And that goes along with, you know, you've got to be able to articulate your messaging and, you know, really be able to do it right when you launch it or it's just going to get lost. There's so many things that are launching right now that that's where you can get that's where you can stumble so yeah brown the destroyer check out those articles that we just posted um all right so yeah here here's another one so uh, simon carlos has a blog that in in a newsletter that if you want to always hear more about the data side of this stuff it's a really good one to to use you can just search for him on gamma sutra uh here's the article that uh, i want to talk about now the we're seeing more games offer a free demo as a separate steam page than their actual game and oh so, i've been seeing that too yeah so the, the reason is, and all the data is still kind of fresh on this, but if you do the free demo on your existing page, it does something not good with your Steam algorithm, and it makes you fall down the, the chart. Whereas if you create the game, create the demo as a separate Steam page. I was wondering why that, they were doing that. Yep it's it's better or it, it, it appears to be better um it, it's one of those that he does a lot of you know breakdowns of followers versus wish list and uh i don't this brown said brown 
destroyers just doesn't mark you as free to play. Uh, hold on a minute. I can tell you. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's exactly it, Hitoshi. People, because Steam reads it as people are going to your page and they're not buying it. And so that's where you can get, you know, you, you tumble down the, the list. Whereas if it's free, but I don't think it marks you as free. Um, well, it does say it does have a free to play tag on it, but it is free to play. So, I mean, why, why would it be bad? It wouldn't be bad if it gets marked as free to play. Just the sample is marked as free to play, not the actual full game. Um, So yeah, there's. The, I'm just sitting here looking at the looking at the page for Drug Dealer Simulator, uh, and I got to give it to Playway. You know, they they have some of the most unique simulators out there. Um, but there's a niche for all this stuff, and it sells well. Um, well, see, their main page has a link to download the demo as well. But the bottom line is you're seeing more and more of these games release a demo as a completely different Steam page. And that's part of the reason is because it doesn't it doesn't hurt your your main page's um, algorithm. Also, people from the outside can't know if you have a free demo if it's embedded in your Steam page. Having another page with a big green badge of demo clearly communicates, hey, I'm free. Yeah. That's true. Um, and as long as you link the two and you, you know, you note that it's a free demo, there's been some other games like this recently. Um, what was the one I played? Something where you were you were managing the monsters in a dungeon, and they had a a separate demo page from the from the real page. I don't remember what the game was though. Um, it's something that you should look into doing. Whether or not it's actually going to be a giant benefit or not. Oh, here's the other one. Um, games that are considered prologues. That's the other. It's not just demo, but there are multi instead of calling it a demo they're calling it a a prologue of you know whatever the game is and so it gives you a little sense into how the game works and then you know that part's free and then if you like it you can buy the whole thing which to me is hilarious because it's like now we're right back to shareware where I started on games back in the 80s. It was like you had a disc and it had a free copy of Wolfenstein 3D. And if you liked it at the end of it, you gave them money and they mailed you the rest of the discs that go with it. So it's it's another good example of how this industry tends to work in these gigantic cycles that we see for years. Um, it's uh yeah. It's, it's, look at that. Look into that. Look at the games that are listed as prologues or free demos as different um, as new sections or new games, and 
check it out because and then, like i said if you don't listen to if you don't get simon carlos's newsletters and blog i uh, i highly recommend that um what else we got andy anything that's that's popped up on your radar lately that's burning holes in my head nothing really nothing <laughs> nothing that's burning holes in my head I mean, I was looking at my uh, Gama Sutra emails and stuff today, and there's. I was like, "Oh gosh, we need to talk about this." Well, if you've got, if if you have questions, any more questions out there about the business end of this stuff, and you want to toss it out, we're still going, and and we'll answer them for the next few minutes here. But it, this isn't a unique time for the industry. I mean, it, it's just one of those that no one really knows how to handle it or capitalize on it because none of us has ever done it before. And it's it's new for everyone and there's tons of opportunity, but it's a matter of making sure you're attacking that opportunity well. And, and that's the whole thing. So uh, it's amazing. When the entire world is quarantined, it's the great equalizer. So, with that, what are you streaming this week, Andy? Uh, let's see. I um, I've been streaming rides on my motorcycle. I'm trying to figure out. Um, it's a little bit bouncy looking, but I mean, I am streaming from my phone. So, um, I was streamed like I streamed yesterday a little bit of a ride. Um, and then also I am actually I've got a bunch of indie games. But then I'm also doing a little bit of role play in um, uh, a, a private role play server in Conan Exiles, which of course I love. But let's see the indie games that I got. Hold on, let me fire up. I I got a bunch of them because they're like, oh, we want you to play our game, and so I'm like, okay, let me check it out. Hey, what's up, Taylor? How's it going? You're on the bonded ones. Um, I'm playing on Fist of the Walrus's uh, private server. It's called Iceberg RP. Um, and but I was playing on Hyborian and all of that. Let's see. I've got Operencia, the Stolen Sun, um, Road to Nowhere, which is crazy. It's the demo. Green Hell. They just uh, Green Hell just opened up multiplayer. Green Hell is kind of like it, it reminds me of the forest. Um, Round Guard, which is something I've been continually playing, which is super fun. It's like Peggle, but it's an R kind of like an RPG Peggle. And then Colt Canyon, that's from Head Up Games. Colt Canyon is pretty cool. It's like a uh, oh god, what is, it's like a Western top-down shooter type, but it's very you know monochrome-ish. I guess <laughs> everything is really beige. Home Gang, Memories of the Forgotten. That's another one. The Complex, which is a... These are all games I've gotten the past couple weeks. <laughs> the Complex, which is a full motion video, right? FMV. Just like the old school stuff. It is super good. It's a super good... A lot of those FMV games are pretty cheesy. This has high production quality, great acting. Um, there's nine different story endings. So I've only gotten one of them so far, but it's cool. There's a lot of violence and... Uh, freaking out and stuff but it's really you know choose your own well you can't say choose your own adventure it's really um about um you know do you do you say this or do you say that kind of thing um 
you've been storytelling on a server for a while been streaming like yeah i've been role-playing for like i don't know four years or something i, I love it i'd love the role-playing all all of last year i think like 80 percent of my streams were role-playing so Crytex, I got a pretty general question. I'm considering starting something on my, in some kind of business R. I got a bunch of ideas and I have a passion to try things, especially entrepreneurial. Actually, I collected some experience in the gaming industry the last years and I really enjoy it. But from a business perspective, it is very risky. What do you think about the risk situation? This entire industry, I mean, anytime you're doing entrepreneurial anything it's risky that's why it, everybody doesn't do it it's, it's because there is an element of a substantial element of risk to it mm -hmm. i have friends who i consider to be far smarter than me who look at me and go i can't believe you've been running your own company for for 10 years this is like crazy risky i would never you know i just couldn't do it, it that's just the reality of it and and if you like any kind of risk if you're not in a position to to run it then you not you shouldn't do it basically you know it, it's it's gambling um but it is also very very fulfilling you know I, i'm the kind of person who i don't want to be in a job or in a situation where i get let go or i get laid off because of the company's stock price tumbled and it was completely out of my control. I can't stand that. I want to be I want to be in charge of my own destiny, put it that way. You know, it's not like I want to be in control because trust me, being the boss is like the thing I hate the most about running a company. <laughs> I don't want to make those decisions. I right. don't want to deal with it. You know, it's like I'm I started this company ten years ago primarily because I didn't want to move to the West Coast and upend my family. Um, not because I wanted to manage people and do all this other stuff that you get to do. Like today, uh, for example, uh, I have to find all the information and put together a application for one of these PPP loans. That shit's not fun. Writing grants not fun it's not good the it's not good it's not good sucks god it sucks i mean you you were talking before we went live about how you spend your entire life in a spreadsheet oh fuck. yeah and that's yeah it's if you've done your research and you understand the risk and you're able to overcome it critex then yeah you're good but you always have to be prepared for the fact that everything can go to shit. Immediately, and, like uh, all of a sudden, bam. Yeah, instantly. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> I tried to watch for Grant both times and two years off my life. Yes, I swear there is a specialty opening in Canada, especially for companies that can just basically help you write grants, you know, and, and things like that. It's, it's, it's not the part that, that is fun about doing this at all. But if you understand the risk and you know what your best opportunity to overcome it is, and you've got a backup plan, i.e. cash sitting around in case you don't make any money for six months, yes. But if you don't have that, 
it's you know i'm not going to sit here and tell you starting a company and, and doing all this is is the end all be all to get rich because it it ain't um we had a question from rather destroyer about legal do i for, do i need to form an llc before i publish my game or can i just publish it without a business license and then get it in retrospect you can just publish it under you know you don't have to have an llc but i wouldn't do it without one you know having that llc it's not difficult um you know we've had multiple attorneys come on the show and, and talk about it and you can absolutely pick up the phone and call one of them um one of those attorneys that is on our show on occasion is my attorney and he will tell you even i don't call him <laughs> for that it's like i went to legal zoom and set it up but it is um it you need to have that LLC in place first. Um, is there a difference doing with INC versus an LLC? All right, so one, keep in mind that the US is the only one that, when we're talking about INC, uh, you know, corporations versus LLCs, which are limited liability corporations, that pretty much only exists in the US. Every country's got their own version. And Pro Material, I will tell you, I am not the person to ask. That is why I have an accountant that tells me which one of those I need to do. Mm. Um, the Powell Group is an LLC. Don't ask me to explain why or what benefit that has over whatever else out there. It really depends on the financial situation of the company. Do you have owners? Do you have partners? Do you have shares? A whole bunch of shit that you need an accountant to figure out. Um, but the bottom line is I highly recommend you having some sort of business structure before you go and you do anything publishing, anything contract-wise at all. Um, yeah, so Hitoshi says, what do you think about studios trying to bootstrap themselves with work for hire to get money for their own IP? I heard it's really hard to get out of the cycle of work for hire. Is it true? Yes, it is beyond true. Uh, and I am a walking testimony. The first company that I founded, 13 years ago was a, we were a production studio. We, but back then there was no word for a production studio. We basically handled the production oversight, the design and all of the business aspects of doing uh, work for hire projects. But then the actual development of the game, while we managed it, it was done by a third party studio somewhere in the world, in the US, in, in uh, Asia, in Europe, somewhere else. So we would work with companies like Nickelodeon and National Geographic and Disney, and they would say, okay, hey, look, we need this type of game, and we would make it happen. And so they looked at those companies looked at us as a developer. The developers that we looked with looked yeah, that we worked with looked at us as a publisher. Uh, the reality is we were either one. But we did, you know, I have watched 20 years of doing this. I have watched the studios my entire career do work for higher work and then try to transition into, you know, internal IP. And it is exceedingly hard. And one of two things happens. They, or one of three things, they are either successful and they pull it off and they don't have to do contract work ever again. Uh, they are unsuccessful and they learn from the mistake and they stumble and they hit a road, you know, a rough patch, but then they, you know, keep doing work for hire 
you know, along the way to, you know, to stay in business. Or in the case of my own company and many other ones, they stumble so badly the whole company goes out of business. So we were doing, you know, good work as a production house for all of these licensed IPs. And we went and did our first original IP, which really wasn't totally original. It was an original game, but I went out and licensed the New York Times bestselling author, and we made a game based on her book, and it was really successful. And then the next two games that we tried to do didn't use any sort of IP, completely original, all internal, and they they failed. And they failed so badly, it took the whole company down. So, you know, that's your three options. You're either going to successfully get off that treadmill, and I would say that's probably 5% of the companies that try it, um, or they're going to try it, realize it's very difficult, and go back to what they were doing. Or, you know, in the case of like I said, my first company, it just completely implodes, and it takes everything down. Um, so yeah, Prime Material says one random tip I learned under work for higher contracts, your freelancers may have rights to the IP if they're on the payroll, the company owns it. I don't know that that's entirely true. Yeah, it depends on what that, the contract says. Yeah, I mean, you can put a clause in the contract that says you're a freelancer, you have no rights to the IP. So that just comes down to how the contract's structured, who, who writes your contract and, and how it's negotiated. But that's, it, it's not... To my knowledge, anyway. And there's also contracts that are like when you work for a company, they say, oh, you can't work for any other company that is direct competition for three years. And oh, yeah, those are bullshit clauses. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, that that just comes down to the contract. Because I mean, I don't know, because I've worked for, I'm, you know, I've had freelancers and, and work for higher teams that we've, you know, sent work to for 20 years. And just because they're not on payroll doesn't mean they have rights to the IP. That's all in the in the contract agreement. But yeah, and, and it all depends. Like if you're in a different state, it's it's not easier to be on a payroll. Like if I work for a company and the company's in a different state, it's easier for them to pay me as a contractor than to put me on payroll because the they would have to have a business location in my state for me to be on their payroll. So it's it's actually it a lot easier just going. to put that clause in there saying you don't own anything from the IP for any work that you did. Yeah, and, and you know it gets even worse when you're dealing with not just different states but different countries. Yeah, because it's like this project that we're working on, uh, you know, me and me and two other folks, one two of us are in the U.S., one of them is not, and even the. Um, membership agreement for setting up the company is more difficult to do because there are different laws and different yeah. aspects to accounting in, in the country that he's in than than the u.s so what a pain it is a pain mm. it's a gigantic pain but you know what it's what we get you know when the world's flat we have access to talent all over when the, the world. world's flat the world is definitely flat now the world is flat from a business point of view. The world is not flat. Don't be one of those flat earthers. Those people drive me nuts. Flirthers. Um, <laughs> Flirthers. It's like, I can show you a globe. You learned how the maps work with the globe. What part of the globe do you not understand? I love um, when they say flat earthers around the globe. Toshi, so, in, in regards to publishers, when pitching the game, you obviously include things like the budget, but do you include things like estimated sales? 
knows the world is concave. <laughs> That's funny. That's why we have lakes <laughs> because the world is concave. Um, all right, Hitoshi. So I will answer your question with a with a question. How do you know what the estimated sales are for your game? Because you don't. In reality, it's neither is the publisher. But um, you're. I've had clients that disagree with me on this, and that's fine that people disagree and just, you know, they're wrong. (laughs) No, not really. They just disagree. I always put the budget or at least an approximate budget in the pitch document, in the initial or, or in the initial email. And I do that because I have been doing this for a very long time. I'm old and I don't have time to bullshit and dance around with people. I know, you know the other advantage I have is that we pretty much know what each publisher is willing to pay for a game. So if you come to me and say, I need $250,000 to finish the game, I'm going to be able to look at our list of 650 some publishers and go, okay, here are the ones that can, that will pay that much. And the, whether they, then it just comes down to platform and do like the game, that sort of stuff. But, <laughs> I always put it in there because I don't want to waste my time or their time when they go, oh, this is a great game. And you're like, okay, I need 250 grand to do it. And they're like, oh, well, we only have like 50 grand to put into it. I always put it in there. I always say, this is what, you know, we need. And because it just gets it, you know, you're ripping the bandaid off. This is what we need right now. You don't want to include estimated sales because quite frankly, you don't know what the estimated sales are. Now, if you use data and show how you got to that point, that's different. But you can't go in and sell, say, oh, well, we expect our game to sell 75,000 units. And, you know, based on this price, this is how much money you can do. But you can use things like App Annie and Steam Spy. And yes, I know Steam Spy is not 100% accurate, but it's the best any of us have unless we want to go pay for. Um, whatever Nielsen data, which let's face it, there's like 20 companies in the industry that want to do that. Um, You want to be able to give that perspective. And the reality is a lot of the publishers that you're talking to, when they're not looking at their own sales figures as examples, they're looking at Steam Spy as well. I mean, everybody's going to the same place. So, If you can sit down and say, here is my game, it is similar in quality and scope and price to these games, and then you can lay out their sales numbers that you get from Steam Spy or some sort of third-party source, that is good. But again, you've just got to be very realistic with what you're doing. You know, if you've got an open-world RPG, you can't say, oh, well, this is what The Witcher 3 and Skyrim sold. And so that's why we think our game is going to make you $100 million. That's not realistic. You need to be looking at, you know, realistic, similar indie games that are out there. And if you can do that and put it in there, then yes, put your estimated sales in, but don't, you know, come up with it off the top of your head or based on a, because a lot of developers will release their sales numbers on, you know, blog articles. Don't, you know, use that 
use actual data. Yeah, Quantitative, qualitative analysis, games that are similar in scope, size, or genre. If, if you have ever done real estate or you've ever watched any of the 40 million real estate shows that are on TV, you're basically doing comparables. So, you know, here's this house that I want to sell. And here is what it's probably going to sell for based on other houses in the area with similar features and size and whatever else goes into houses. But that's what you want to do. If you can do that, then yeah. Um, yeah. All right. See, that's it. You know, Chris, Chris um, says, well, I checked Steam Spot along with Chris Zikowski's Excel with data of, of estimated sales and gains. Yeah. As long as you are pointing at real numbers and you are realistic about the, your own scope and size of your game, you can do it. But it's not something that you could just like pull it out. Um, Jim says, I am curious how to put future contractors in the scope. I mean, if I am looking for an artist, but I still have, I still have no artists on the team. Um, that did that's where you just basically put in your if you are you talking like budget scope because that's you estimate <laughs> you can do it one of two ways you can estimate what that artist is going to cost and hope you can get somebody that's good for that price or you can put in your budget and you're going to be saying this is how much we're going to get uh this is how much we're going to pay an artist when we get them um it's, it's, I'm not ever going to recommend that you go into a publisher meeting and go, you know, we don't have any artists yet, but we're going to make a pretty game. You kind of, if you don't, <laughs> you want to dance around that as much as possible. Um, and that's why we say, you know, it's always, you know, it's always good to have the leads laid out. You may not have all the artists that you need, but the reality is if you don't have at least some sort of lead artist, then you probably don't have graphics in the game or, or any that are worth selling to a publisher. Um, it, it's perfectly fine to estimate those costs. You just have to remember that once you put those costs in there as estimates, it's not like you can go back to the publisher after the contract's all said and done and went, well, the artist is going to cost another $20,000 than we thought the publisher's going to tell you tough shit, figure it out. Um, because it's not really their problem. You gave them a budget, you're expected to deliver on that budget. Um, so you, even if they're not on contract, we have a lot of developers that come to us and they've got the team picked out. But quite frankly, the team is at other companies working a real job until this company gets the funding to bring them on. That's not an uncommon scenario at all. And as long as you're not pitching your project to a company where one of your people are currently working, it's it's not a deal killer. I mean, yeah, when the publisher sits down and does their risk analysis, excuse me, they're going to put that as a flag. It's like, okay, this company doesn't doesn't officially have these people yet. But no one's going to toss your proposal out the window solely based on the fact that you don't have everybody working under the same roof right now. Have, have you noticed that the minute we say we're almost done, we get like all the questions? All the questions. <laughs> Which is fine. We're all under quarantine. I have nowhere to go. That's, um, that's why we do this. Um, let's see if I missed. Did we miss anything in here? Um, ch -ch 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 -ch. 
No, I think we got everything. Um, so our my normal webinar tomorrow, and Toshi, I know you've sat through this, so you know what we say uh, on how to find a publisher is actually going to be not on our Zoom page tomorrow. I am giving it over at the Achievers Hub uh, webinar, which is uh, another you know, good firm for people out there. So the catch is, it, if you're not a member of the Achievers Hub, this actually does um, cost money. But at the same time, uh, that money is going back into our own indie game, or at least our part of the money is going back into our own indie game business initiatives to help more people. Uh, let's see if does this work good. God, that's a hold on. Let me. I don't know if I can delete that or not. That is a big ass wow. link. That is a big ass link. Yeah. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. There's there's no way to like delete a message in, in restream chat. Um, Let me see. It's ten dollars. So. I'll be doing that live tomorrow with the wonderful folks over at Achievers Hub, who is one of our IGB um, event partners. Uh, all right, so hold on a second. Uh, Hatoshi had questions before I posted Ouch. that random ass link. What about freelancers? If most of your team, if not everyone, are freelancers, is that a deal killer for a publisher? No. You just need to make sure you've got actual honest to god contracts in place with each one of those freelancers so this is back to the, the whole ip thing that publisher is going to want to make sure that the agreements that you have with your freelancers unequivocally transfer all rights to what they do for the game to you because they are not going to want to get into a situation where they publish a game and then some random coder from Oregon, you know, sues them because they use something that he has access to because he was, or he did because he was one of your freelancers. Um, that's where you just have to make sure that your agreement has that good lockdown of information in there. Um, and there was another question that came up that I, I don't remember what it was. Seems like there was something else, but anyway, yeah, I yeah. refreshed, so I lost all the questions. Ah, uh, well, um, son of a. So yeah, no, it's not a deal killer. I mean, there are a ton of games that are developed by you know teams of freelancers. There, that's not unusual, especially when you get into more of the specialized aspects of the industry. It's like you know, audio. We work with with Unlock Audio, and and Elliot's got a fantastic team and a wonderful way of budgeting and pricing things for indies, which is the final we work with him. But, you know, all, for the vast majority of developers out there, it just doesn't make sense to have a full-time audio person on staff. You don't need audio, you know, for every aspect of the development. They can do what they need to do in a shorter period of time than the programmers can program the entire game. So, you know, things like art, a lot of video and, I mean, uh, sound and art and video and a lot of those things are very typically outsourced to other studios, either as independent freelancers or as freelance studios. So, no, it's not a deal killer. You just need to make sure that you've got all the right paperwork in place. All the paperwork. Alls of it. 
All right. Um, but I, I think we are good now. And so if anybody, if you have other questions, you can always find us on our Discord. Which yeah, is which now is right there on the overlay. It, yeah, it's right there. Discord.gg slash Indie Game Business or on Twitter, Business Indie. Or yeah. you can email us directly or but, you can frankly, call Jay on the phone at 555. Yeah, <laughs> publish your game. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, one nine hundred. That's no, we don't have nine hundred numbers. No, that's your. Oh, no, that's the top secret them. one, right? We could build. That's like two fifty a minute, that right? Be, um, that would be. Hi, good. this is Jay. So, <laughs> tell me about your. You've game. reached Jay. <laughs> so we will be back Friday. Friday. Uh, and, and no, I don't. I don't know what the topic is going to be, but we'll figure it out before then. Yeah. Um, but. In the meantime, stay safe, stay away from people, and have fun and play some games. And don't stress. Nobody's doing this shit perfectly. It's all new to all of us. I am. I'm doing great. Uh, (laughs) Everybody except Indy. And and also, you know what? If you don't miss us live, you can check us out on anchor.fm slash Indie Game Business and all the other things. You know, it's like on Google Podcasts and... Spotify. Spotify. There's a bunch of different ones. So whatever podcast platform you use, just search for indie game business, and chances are we're on there. Yep. And you can support us if you want to. If you want to chip in some money to help us do this, is there a way to do that? No. Yeah. There's a when you go to Anchor FM, there's a a link right there to support the podcast. Oh, awesome! Amazing. All right, everybody. All right, thank you so much. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.